Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 78 of UConn 360. That's the only podcast known to science that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. My name is Tom Breen. I'm your facilitator of sorts, and joining me from the three corners of Connecticut and one corner of New York are the uh, UConn 360 players. That's just the name I've come up with for all of us. I hope, <laughs> hope it sticks. Maybe we'll get matching satin jackets or something. It's better than pod people. Yes. It is a little better than pod people. It's a little more dignified. I, I do. I am waiting for you to drop your corners metaphor, though, because it doesn't make any sense. It, you know what? It, I think it makes a kind of inner sense. <laughs> um, the UConn 360 players are Tyler Silverio. Tyler, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing all right. Julie Bartuka, who doesn't like the corners reference. Because <laughs> it's geographically incorrect. What's up? And Ken Best. Well, we're here. It's still snowy out there, but uh, we're in good shape. Yeah, that's right. As we're recording this, it's been a snowy week. It seems like the snow has kind of gone off and on for days and days. But, you know, it's winter. It's New England or New York. It's fine. <laughs> I couldn't believe how long it snowed for, though, on Monday. It was like a good, like, 30 hours of snow. Yeah, and I was kind of surprised it didn't. I mean, where I live, I got maybe six inches, even though it snowed the Really? Yeah. I got like 15, I think. Wow. Yeah, I was about six, seven. Hmm. Well, we're in the semester, as you're listening to this, and things are, are going okay for now. Fingers crossed that we'll be able to have a successful spring semester, you know, despite the challenges of the pandemic. We've got a lot of fun stuff for you. Some things I think you'll know if you're a UConn sports fan, for example. Some things that will maybe be new to you. If you want to learn about UConn's research. And, uh, you know, maybe a little surprise in the history corner. Before we do that, why don't we talk about some news? Well, we've got some good information from the Jorgensen Center. They're going to continue the Jorgensen digital stage. A very interesting array of performers performing from different parts of the world, in most cases, and one performance from here. Ben Folds was a very talented pianist and musician. He's going to perform in early March from Australia. The Kronos Quartet, one of the legendary groups that have been here before, performing virtually. The Arsis Saxophone Quartet will be performing virtually from Mannheim, Germany. And Chris Thiele's coming back to Jorgensen. He's actually going to be in Jorgensen, of course, from the Punch Brothers and Nickel Creek, live from here series on NPR. Chris Thiele's going to be in in April. So we've got a lot of good stuff uh, that you can watch virtually. Cool. Some great news uh, out of the Center for Career Development. They do a study every year of where grads have ended up. And despite all the challenges of the pandemic and the economy and businesses right now, um, UConn graduates, 60% uh, were employed full-time as of the end of 2020 calendar year of the class of 2020. 24% went on to post-grad education programs, and the rest were in the military, volunteering, or doing other endeavors of their choice which is pretty much in line with how it is year after year. So great success for our students. And a lot of them also stayed in Connecticut. Almost three quarters of the employed in-state students were working in Connecticut. And another 22% of employed out-of-state graduates had stayed here to launch their careers. The, the fact that it's so close to a, what it had been in past years is really impressive considering the pandemic is disruption on you know the, the entire economy. It's very impressive. Now, if you're a fan of UConn sports, you're probably familiar with a lot of voices, and maybe one voice in particular, and Ken Best is here to tell us the story behind that voice. Ken? 
Yeah, several years ago, I did a UConn Today story about John Tuitt, who was the public address announcer for the Huskies at Rentschler Field, the XL Center, and Gamble Pavilion. Uh, Husky Nation hears John's voice introducing the players, announcing fouls called in basketball and first downs in football, as well as providing information about upcoming events at UConn. He's also heard on WHUS radio doing play-by-play for soccer games, which he's done for many years. His day job, or I should say his morning job, is reporting the news and being the host of the Vinyl Frontier weekdays on WILI in Willimantic. This year, with only a small number of family and friends permitted inside Gample Pavilion during the pandemic, things are different. I talked with John about how things are really different now behind the public address microphone. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Gample Pavilion in the basketball capital of the world for tonight's game. With the pandemic and less crowd available, just uh, some family and friends, how have you had to adjust handling the PA system uh, when there's not that many people there and you're also in a different location than you used to be? Yeah, it gets lonely, Ken. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, it is pretty strange, but uh, strange new world, isn't it? Uh, yeah, the different location is up uh, in between the bowl level and the upper level. It's it's a good view. I'm not going to complain. You can see fine. Uh, it's not that high. I remember back in the Don Bruno days doing games at the Hartford Civic Center where it was a lot higher up in terms of rows. So it's a fine view. In fact, there's advantages sometimes on the floor. You're dealing with uh, you get screened by different people at ground level. Uh, the Big disadvantage, though, is not having that extra set of eyes sitting next to the official scorer, Bob O'Day, and we would, you know, we work together, and I think that was a tip-in by number 12, or we could uh, bounce ideas off each other and then be another set of eyes for each other, and we don't have that luxury now. Now, uh, if there's something that's uh, a little screwy, let's say a, a double technical, we have a walkie-talkie that we communicate with each other with, but uh, overall, you know, just try to provide the energy Luckily, you know, I'm a hardcore UConn fan, so when UConn does well, you know, the energy sort of comes naturally. The point of being able to uh, see things, you told me uh, some time ago when we we discussed about how you uh, work as the public address announcer, it's easier to see a three-point shot uh, being a three-point shot being elevated because you don't have to worry about not being able to see the line, even though it's changed uh, in, in recent years. But getting the hand signals from the official as to who the foul was called on and sometimes getting a clarification on what was going on is it's got to be different because you're not on the floor level. You're actually on the other side of the arena now. Right. So when the referee comes to the scores table to uh, give the hand signals of the number of the person who committed the foul, I have to try to be dyslexic and, and <laughs> I'm reading them backwards. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that that's an issue. Most of the time I get a pretty good grip on who the foul is likely on. Uh, sometimes there's a you know a play where somebody charges in, there's a pile of players like, a, like bowling pins and you have to wait. And, you know, the important thing is just to have it accurately, and if I have to wait for it to be up on the scoreboard on the individual numbers, they have a, a statistics of how many fouls and how many team fouls are up there. And if I have to wait, well, you know, that's the important thing is to get it right. Well, the other thing is that there's lots of announcements, uh, promotional and marketing things that normally would be going on uh, in, a, in a capacity arena that's, that's packed with fans and, and people wanting to hear what you've got to say because of promotionals for games and, and upcoming events. Is that still the case? 
even with the smaller crowds, that you've got a constant stream of messages to deliver, or has that changed? Just between you and me, it's a lot lighter duty. They're, they don't they don't have the uh, in between timeout conversations or uh, promotions. There's a couple of things that uh, like assist of the game at halftime, but in general, I just kind of sit back during timeouts now when it used to be three-ring circus most of the time. And what about the energy in the arena? I know the coaches have talked about the fact that it is much different uh, before the game because there's always some murmur and buzz of the crowd coming in and the activity of the security folks and the vendors and everybody there. How does it feel compared to what you're used to? There's no sugarcoating that it's not as uh, big a buzz in the arena. There's there's no question about that. Uh, I think the players have to bring their energy to it, and I think the the reserves are doing a good job from from every team that comes in trying to keep the energy going and uh, provide that lift that the fans normally would. But there's just certain things you can't replace. I, I think the, the Creighton men's basketball game is an example of a game that the crowd wouldn't have let UConn lose on that afternoon. It does subtract from uh, home advantages, not just for UConn, but for everyone. And uh, you're seeing a lot more road teams come up with upsets this year. Uh, just from the standpoint of the year itself, it's it's been so odd for just about everything in, in all of our existences. You normally would be at Wrenchler Field uh, several times uh, in the fall. You'd also be calling soccer games on WHUS uh, during the fall. But you're back at Fritas and you're at Gamble for the normal uh, amount of games as they are allowed to be played. Your activity is, is, do you look more forward to getting to the arena now? Because it was such a quiet period up until just really uh, several weeks ago. Yeah, that that is the question. Who needs this more, me or them? Uh, a lot of times I answer that I need it more. I definitely missed it. And uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity to come in and see games because uh, right, now, right now, even at uh, basketball and hockey, it's just... Uh, handful of friends or girlfriends or parents that are at the game and I get to go and I haven't missed a game yet hockey or basketball so yeah uh it's 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 a privilege to get to do that job and I'm certainly grateful to get to see the games now I I know listening to the games on the radio and from having heard you and Wayne talk in the morning and just the listening to the games that I do on my own uh between uh, Bob and and Debbie for the women, and Wayne and Mike uh, for the men. They're watching a game basically on television when it's a road game, and they're further away from the action like you are when they're in, in Gamble. Does it feel different to you when you listen to the games on the radio? It depends on whether they get the special effects of all the sneakers squeaking and the, the rims rattling when it's just a generic white noise crowd. Then, yeah, I can I can I have an ear for that. I can tell, but... Uh, you know, I think the people that are doing the games off television monitors are doing an excellent job so far. We we still don't know what the situation is going to be as we move forward because of the string of reschedulings and, and postponements that we have. Is there any sense yet of, of what's going to happen once we get to the end of the season? I know the, the Big East has talked about, you know, they're going to be the men will be in Madison Square Garden. The women will be at Mohegan Sun. But beyond that, we don't know what's going to happen with the NCAAs necessarily. Some of the people in the know, at least in women's basketball, are starting to call San Antonio the Texas Invitational. So my guess would be that everybody, maybe 64 teams, go to Texas and San Antonio, and uh, they're all going to they're already going to do a thing in Indianapolis with the men. I'm just got my fingers crossed that they'll even have a Mohegan Sun women's tournament or 
uh, Madison Square Garden for the men. You talk about day-to-day status in sports. That's uh, the sports landscape right now. Introducing a stunning lineup for the Yukon Huskies. Uh, John is looking forward to having crowds back into Gamble and Rentschler and every place else he uh, does his public address announcements. He's also looking forward to the spring season because we're going to have uh, baseball and softball at the and soccer uh, has been moved from last fall to the spring as a result of the pandemic and our new facilities not too far from Gamble Pavilion. Very nice. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to life getting back to a point where we can attend sporting events in, in crowds again. Me too. I miss concerts. I do too. I, 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 I miss going places also. <laughs> Same. <laughs> Now, Julie, you spoke to a UConn faculty member who's quite prominent, someone whose work I, I follow pretty closely, and that's Professor Chifulius from the NIAG School of Education. Why don't you tell us what you talked about? I will. I've got some news you can use, as it were. Sandy Chifulius is a licensed psychologist and a Board of Trustees Distinguished Professor in the NIAG School of Education. She serves as the founder and co-director of the UConn Collaboratory on School and Child Health. So they focus on helping schools implement evidence-informed policies and practices. She's an expert in integrating health and learning to support the whole child and strategies to support mental health and emotional well-being. So in the context of the pandemic, we talked about all of this, basically how parents can support their kids through all the uncertainty with, you know, online schooling, will school be remote today, and also just in the context of what's going on in our country right now. The pandemic is on everyone's minds, and you've done some writing about how parents can kind of help their kids, support their kids. So I feel like I've heard a lot, at least on Twitter and Facebook and from friends, about how the pandemic is affecting the parents, which is obviously a big concern. But what about the kids? Besides the worries about them, you know, maybe falling behind with these kind of weird years, what's going on in their heads during all of this about is school going to stay open? Are we going to stay remote? Are we going to go back? And how can parents support them through that? Honestly, the biggest thing on my mind right now is how are we going to support the mental health and emotional well-being of our children? Yes, we've got the schooling. Yes, we've got the physical safety. Lots of things to be worried about. But really, our ultimate goal is to make sure that we're safe physically and emotionally. We've put a lot of effort since the pandemic started on the physical side. But we're really now starting to see that the emotional is likely equally important And we really do need to have a whole person, whole child, whole parent, whole teacher approach. What we need to do is think about the social. So how are we connecting? Emotional, how are we feeling? And behavioral, how are we acting and what are we doing? I'm sure you've seen, again, in different news stories, and it seems to be in the media every day now, anxiety, depression in the overall population is on the rise. We're starting to get data on what that means for kids. It's not perfect yet because we're still in the middle of everything, but we're seeing increases in emergency room visits for mental health issues. And the same thing with the suicide trends. We're, We're watching that really carefully now. There are definitely things to be worried about, but for me, I like to try and channel those worries into actions. The fact that we know this is a concern means that we have opportunity for action. And so we can talk about emotional health behavioral health, mental health, all those great words as a priority. And as like, this is important to us instead of kind of hiding it, like maybe we've done in the past. And maybe we can even make it a national priority as a public health issue. 
So I think about it again as like, this is great opportunity for action in terms of strengthening things for every one of us. I'm having troubles at different days and times, right? We all are. So we have to think about the idea that we need to strengthen strategies for everyone and maybe intensify strategies for other ones. And we can do something about that. I didn't coin the phrase, but I think it's a great phrase that's been referred to as behavioral vaccines. So (laughs) just like we're getting our our physical vaccine for COVID, uh, it's the idea of behavioral vaccines so that every one of us can benefit. And that's been really the focus of our work has been working in schools and with schools and families to think about what are the strategies that every one of us can do to bolster and strengthen or reinforce emotional well-being. I was actually going to ask you about the anxiety and depression. I saw that you tweeted out the Times article on Las Vegas, how a surge in teen suicides actually caused the schools to reopen when, you know, maybe COVID-wise, it wasn't wasn't exactly what they wanted. This has been getting worse in recent years anyway, with social media and all these other factors. That was really interesting on a broad level. What can a parent do? How can they they help this? As we go back again to the idea of what do we need to do to create an emotional well-being and a wellness environment? Because that behavioral vaccines idea that I just mentioned is the idea of prevention. So the core piece to what we want to do is prevent from getting to the the really negative and awful outcomes that are all over the media. Let's go over a couple strategies maybe that create a foundation for emotional well-being or wellness Mm -hmm. for, for each of us. First strategy is to acknowledge the emotions, right? We don't bury them or hide them or say there's something wrong about feeling bad or sad or mad or worried about something. We want to validate those feelings. Because again, a lot of these feelings are pretty normal right now that we're all having when we're going up and down in in the way we're worrying about or thinking about things that are going on. So acknowledging the feelings is what's called psychoeducation. We can just learn about what's happening, what's kind of normal, what's to be expected. We could do something like it's called don't sink the boat. So if we want to learn about the cycle of anxiety and how parents might unintentionally reinforce those feelings in a way that would be uh, negative. So we could do something like we think about building your boat. And if you let a lot of rocks pile up in that boat, what happens? It sinks. It sinks, right? So we think about each of those rocks as a worry rock, right? Or a worry. And we think about the boat as you. And so what we're trying to do is gain skills to figure out how do I toss my rocks overboard, right? We don't want them to sink. And we don't do that by just waiting for somebody to bail the water out. Like, oh, it's okay, honey, you'll be fine. You know, let me pull this out because that could just reinforce those feelings. So we want to write those worries down, practice tossing them away and and get praise and feedback for being able to toss them. And that, that exercise is really just about learning about emotions, learning about how we balance and what we think about, about what's going on. Probably the biggest one that you see in the news or everywhere in all the helpful articles that that we are all (laughs) with is really pushing hard to maintain those routines. I know it's extremely controversial, but that's one of the reasons why there's been pushes to to get schools open. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's about academic learning slide and all that stuff, but really it's about predictability. I mean, we're human beings. We love routines. We love our rituals. We love everything that creates this sense of calmness, right? And our knowing of what we're supposed to be doing. So pushing really hard to keep those routines in place and not militaristic, we're not military, <laughs> but getting a schedule going. So right. it could be different for kids, but I do it even with my teen. How do we set up the daily routine? What are we going to do? So with younger kids, you could use picture boards 
and schedule those blocks. Like when's my learning time? When is my play time? When is my sleep time? Like you would do if you went to school and you mm-hmm. see it on the board, right? In person for older kids, you can use, I don't know, technology, different, <laughs> different, whatever strategy works best for them. And then you check in without judgment. How did it go? Well, what do we need to do differently? Maybe that gaming time before the homework is done isn't really working so great. Maybe we should switch some of our blocks around. It's a non-judgmental, non-argumentative conversation about (laughs) the things that we're going to do. And then, you know, if it's not working, well, what breaks do we need? How do we get our attention, our feelings back on track? What are the lists of things that we can do to, to reset? And then, okay, what do we think about this routine? What do we need to do differently? You wrote on your Psychology Today blog about the silver linings that come with what's going on right now with kind of remote and hybrid learning. Tell me about those. Again, I think it's acknowledging that we're all in a different space with all of this. It's not catastrophizing that everything is awful for everyone. We go in with that attitude in 2021. Schools aren't going to reopen again. We don't even know if they're going to be open in the fall. How does that set your mind? Not so great. Right. right. Talk about emotional well-being. (laughs) So instead of viewing everything as a negative, let's look for some positives. And in that particular article, there have been some highlights for some kids. Again, not all, but for some, there have been positives about a remote environment. Even in my house, again, we have a teen. So usually we're used to being crazy busy with the schedule of nonstop from pre-dawn. Let me me say pre-dawn till way past whenever. And some of the spaces in the hybrid schedule have given a little bit more breathing time. Now, would I prefer school to be the way that it used to be and back to maybe normal routines? Sure, but it's not all negative. So if we can start to look for silver linings by looking for pockets, pockets of good or pockets of possible, we should say, that are positive, maybe not good, then that can help us. I also wanted to just touch on the pandemic isn't the only thing going on right now, obviously. And I'm wondering... Other than naming those emotions, things like that, how can parents talk to children and teens about what's going on in our country right now between the insurrection at the Capitol a few weeks ago, the general divisiveness? What's the best way to approach that to keep your child emotionally well? That's a great question. There isn't going to be one best way, but there are going to be some some strategies to think about. And I think you're asking me about that in particular because of the, the themes that I'm trying to to reinforce is how we can really use these as teachable moments around social emotional well-being, mm-hmm. social emotional wellness, social emotional learning, really critical opportunities to embed in civics and democracy and all the, the wonderful stuff that we need to have in our nation for future generations. But the key piece about it is to address it directly. If we put our heads down and we bury ourselves again in the sand and we ignore it, what that does is it leaves kids hanging to interpret it on their own, which in effect can create more anxiety, right? Mm -hmm. More worry because you're left hanging. So it's important to understand facts in a way that's appropriate developmentally. So things that I talk about with a 15-year-old would be different than the way I talk about it with a seven-year-old. That's part of the psychoeducation rocks exercise we talked about before is here are the facts. Now let's talk about what we're thinking about it. What, What are we thinking? What are we feeling? What do I believe is the parent? What are my belief systems? That's a great opportunity to use this situation as a teachable moment to not only strengthen their social emotional skills, but learn their history and civics lessons, but begin to identify family, community, and then your own personal beliefs and values. 
There are some really great resources out there. We've put out some of them from other people in some of our collaboratory newsletters. I think the Child Mind Institute in particular has some really great steps for parents. There are great curriculum guides for teachers that have come out. So there's good opportunity to really use these really horrific and horrendous situation to understand history behind Mm -hmm. it. It's not just something that came out of nowhere that understand the history and to understand your role in changing. That said, though, it is important to use that uh, analogy. I think we're probably tired of hearing, but we'll say it again, is to put your own oxygen mask on first. Like if you're not ready to have a conversation about the facts and your thoughts, you you shouldn't do that because you can Mm -hmm. create more issues. So writing things down, sometimes I'm better at doing that. Like, what do I want to say? I script it out, then I'm better able to, to start the conversation. And you can find the Collaboratory on School and Child Health podcast at cschuconn.edu. Very nice. Well, now it's time to turn to history. And I have a question for you. Do you know which university the first Connecticut resident to be decorated for gallantry in World War II graduated from? Was it the University of Connecticut? That's correct, Julie. <laughs> Lucky guess. That's correct. Lucky guess. <laughs> Uh, I'd like to tell the tale of class of 1941's James Angelo Varinus, or maybe Varinus. I apologize if I'm pronouncing that name wrong. I'm a really basic white bread guy from Connecticut. James Angelo Varinus, or Angie, to his fellow Huskies, was the son of Greek immigrants. He grew up in New Haven and attended Hill House High School, famous Hill House High School, where his classmates included Ernest Borgnine and the writer Joseph Payne Brennan. Uncle Barry went there, too. Oh, really? (laughs) So, So did Artie Shaw. All roads lead back to Uncle Barry. He was a a standout basketball player at Hill House High School, won a basketball scholarship to UConn, and played on the 1941 New England Conference Championship team. Um, That was back when they didn't really have conference tournaments, so it was just whatever team had the best record in basketball would be the the conference champion. Mm -hmm. Kind of the way they used to do it in baseball, too. Uh, And when he graduated in 1941, in July, he enlisted in the Air Force. Now, this is, of course, before the U.S. had entered World War II, but World War II was going on at the time. And when the war did start, after Pearl Harbor, Angie Varinus became a co-pilot of a plane called the Memphis Belle. Perhaps you've heard of it. Famous flight. That's right. Memphis Belle. As a B-17 Flying Fortress bomber, uh, there was a, a famous 1944 documentary made about it and also a 1990 movie that's, it's okay. It's a, <laughs> it's a, my dad liked it a lot. It's a dad movie. The reason the Memphis Bell was famous is it was the first U.S. aircraft to successfully fly 25 missions over Germany without being shot down or losing a single wow. crew member. In fact, 80% of the planes in its bomber group were shot down during the war. Wow. So it's remarkable that, that it didn't happen. Every member of the crew was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross, and only one of them got a Purple Heart, actually, because they were able to evade serious damage, although the the plane was shot many times. In fact, uh, five different times they had an engine shot out from the plane, but they never crashed. And James Varinus, the Yukon Husky, after a few missions with the Memphis Bell, he was the co-pilot. He became the pilot of his own plane. And in the Air Force in those days, the pilot got to name the plane and he named it the Connecticut Yankee. Oh, Uh, thanks, Angie. And the Connecticut Yankee also flew uh, many successful missions over Germany. In fact, in the very first all-American raid of Germany, in other words, all the planes were American, there were no British planes, he shot down three uh, Nazi planes in that raid. And he became pretty famous uh, in the U.S. He was written about by the, the mainstream press. And so in 1943, he and the crew of the Memphis Belle, they were all brought back to the States to tour the U.S. with the plane to raise war bonds. 
If you don't know, war bonds were essentially loans that private citizens made the government so the government could finance the war effort. So they, they traveled the whole country promoting the war effort. And he was also the guy in the crew who, I guess, recruited is maybe the right word. He's the guy in the, in the crew who found the, the plane's mascot. It was a Scottish terrier named Stuka after the, <laughs> the German planes. So Stuka did not accompany them on combat missions. I hope not. Stuka was just at the base. But Stuka did fly with them on the tour of the U.S. So they would fly from city to city in this, this giant airplane and they would get out and they'd have this dog and everyone loved it. And the dog actually came home with him after the war and was his pet after the war. Aww. After the war, he settled in Woodbridge, married, had three kids. He opened a furniture business that's actually still in business. Uh, and he passed away in 2003. He was also the first Connecticut resident to receive a decoration for gallantry during World War II. So a really interesting side of Husky history there. Quite a famous alum. Maybe people yeah. don't know as much about the war now as we get farther away from it. But uh, it was a big deal. The Memphis Bell. You can actually see the documentary online about it, the 1944 document. It's very good. And you can see the plane itself at the National Museum of the Air Force in Dayton, Ohio. Which maybe I'll do when this pandemic thing is over. <laughs> I rode in the uh, Liberty Bell, which was another. Oh, yeah, okay. Which has which has since uh, crashed and yes. is no longer. But I did ride in it a few years ago. The Memphis Bell, sweet. interestingly, was named after the girlfriend of the, the pilot, Robert Morgan. She was from Memphis. Nice. And, uh, so uh, he's the one who got to name it. How cool would that be? Like, your boyfriend names a plane after you? Yeah, and it's like a famous plane. Like. And like a nice name. Like, a, you're the Memphis Belle. Yes. Yeah. It's like real, real sweet. That's a really cool story. I didn't know about this person. Uh, I found some pictures I'll post on the old main account. Uh, I found some picture of James Varanus with Stuka, the Scottish Terrier. Of course, we need the dog. And uh, also with him kind of leaning out the window of the Memphis Bell. And it was when they, they used to do that thing where they would stamp swastikas on the plane after they, for every Nazi plane they shot down. Mm -hmm. So he's like leaning out the window and there's a bunch of swastikas stamped on there. It's a great photo. So yeah, so th there we go. Hats off to uh, Lieutenant Colonel Varanus. That's the rank he retired with. Very nice. What was the name of his furniture store? Javco. Not familiar. Where was it? Down in Woodbridge? It is still in Woodbridge, Connecticut to this day. Very nice. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening to the latest episode of Yukon 360. If you uh, want more of our winning personalities, you can find us on Twitter at Yukon Podcast or at Maine underscore old. You can find me at TJ Breen, and please check out Yukon uh, Today, the revamped Yukon Today, which is online at today.yukon.edu. Tyler, is there anything else uh, you'd like to uh, tell the good people of listener land? Uh, yeah, you can find my postings at Yukon Foss on Instagram. That's the social media for the Filipino-American Student Association at UConn. Julie, how about you? I am at Julie Bartuka on Twitter, and I wanted to share some news from the Office for Diversity and Inclusion. They have launched the Higher Education Anti-Racist Teaching, or HART, podcast, uh, where assistant professor Milagros Castillo-Montoya and doctoral student Omar Ramandia explore what anti-racist teaching in higher education is and give some advice on uh, anti-racist teaching for other educators. That can be found at heartyukon.podbean.com. Ken, how about you? Well, my exploits, as usual, can be found at uh, today.yukon.edu. And on the Saturday afternoons from 3 to 6 at 91.7 WHUS in stores, Yukon Sound Alternative, the show we call Good Music, airs. And, of course, we have the rebroadcast of the Yukon 360 podcast at 11 o'clock on Fridays at the same station, 91.7. Very nice. 
Uh, all right, everyone. Thanks, and uh, we'll talk to you in uh, a couple weeks.